welcome to Keen Observations on the Detroit Lions. My name is Anthony Keen, and I'll be your host. All right, thank you for joining me on my uh, first podcast, first episode here. Um, again, my name is Anthony Keen, and I kind of got my start writing um, a while back. Uh, started with an article I had written and submitted to the uh, sportingnews.com. Uh, it was about a reaction, my reaction to Barry Sanders' retirement. And uh, I emailed it to them. And a couple days later, it was on their front page. Um, so that was when I first kind of got the itch to write. Uh, I would submit a few more things to them over the years. And then uh, in 2007, I got the opportunity to work for usatoday.com on what was the precursor to Lions Wire. Um, after that, I went to lionsgab.com, which is part of the Sports Gab Network. I was a site editor on that site for a number of years. And then uh, I decided to take some time off because my contract called for five articles a week. That got to be a bit much. Um, but a few months after I hung that up, the Detroit Free Press reached out and asked if I would write a weekly column under the Lions Gab um, name. So I wrote uh, for the Detroit Free Press for another four years after that. And um, then I decided to take a break from writing once uh, my daughter was born. And I had forgotten that in my final episode on the Free Press, I had created um, an email, a Google email, and had uh, left it in the article saying, if anybody had wanted to talk about the Lions, uh, feel free to reach out to me. I stumbled across that email. Um, Oddly enough, the night that the Lions lost to the Seahawks in the playoffs a few years back, and um, the inbox was filled with readers um, thanking me for my coverage, asking me when I would come back or where else I would write. So that got me to start up my own blog on WordPress, uh, where I continued to write mostly weekly things during during the season, um, but then started to focus a little bit more in on draft coverage after that. Um, where and I continued writing until uh, <laughs> a few, well, say a few games past midseason of um, the second Matt Patricia season. And uh, I'm not a very fast typist, so taking the amount of time it took to write articles about why the Lions were losing the same way over and over. Uh, got to be a little too much for me, so I stopped writing and only focused on some stuff around the draft, um, and then decided that I think I'm a, a much better speaker than I am a type a typist. So decided to give the podcast uh, world a try. You know, try to beat everybody to the punch. It's not like everybody's already here or anything. But that's kind of who I am and where I came from. Um, I also have an interesting story about how I became a Lions fan, given that I'm born and raised and lived in Wisconsin my entire life. But I'll save that for a different podcast. Uh, what I really want to do is kind of dive into all of the happenings um, that will be occurring over the next week and a half to two weeks in Lions world. It's probably the most important two weeks in franchise history. I know that sounds like hyperbole, but um, I honestly believe that. So let's uh, let's jump right into it. 
Okay. Chris Spielman was hired uh, a couple weeks ago, and most of the beat guys and national people have kind of reported on it ad nauseum. I don't want to spend a ton of time on it, but right after he was hired, I watched his introductory press conference, and I had a couple takeaways, just some things that jumped out to me or, or that I found very interesting. Uh, the first being, I get the impression that he wasn't much of a fan of Matt Patricia or the way that he um, conducted himself. It's not that he said anything overt, um, but basically everything that he said he looks for is kind of the exact opposite of what Matt Patricia stood for. He embraces different perspectives. He wants to empower people to do their jobs. He wants leaders. He wants people that understand their limitations and know how to uh, work around them. Uh, but you know, via collaboration or finding um, finding a way to learn. Uh, that's not to say that Matt Patricia didn't care about learning, um, but he definitely didn't want empowered people. Um, he wanted his way. He wanted people to do things uh, the way he wanted them done, and he wanted to oversee and have everything coming through him. Um, in essence, micromanaging the organization, and that is not what. Uh, Chris Spielman believes in. So that's very refreshing because I don't think I don't think people can experience high levels of success operating that way anymore. I think everything has changed too much um, to have this kind of one point person running everything. You know, a, a good manager in the world of business needs to build a team that can get the job done. Um, I don't think that that's any different in the world of sports or in pretty much any other industry, you have to be able to get good people in place and allow them to do their jobs. It's just a fundamental need for a successful organization. So the fact that he acknowledged that right away, very important. Um, he also realizes what he knows and he doesn't know. You know, the quote that um, he gave when asked why he didn't pursue the GM position, he said that would be a disservice to the Ford family. Um, he knows that he's not a GM or a qualified GM candidate yet. Uh, and he, he doesn't lack the humility to be able to say that either. Um, that's very important. I think, you know, football is a game of egos, but if you look at the people that are truly successful, it's the people that have humility, the people that think that even though they've accomplished something, they haven't actually accomplished something, you know, Peyton Manning and Tom Brady and Drew Brees and those types of players accomplished a ton of accolades, but they kept working hard um, and they would take criticism. So that's very important for a coach, for a GM, for a player is to have that humility. And Chris Spielman provides that. And I think he can be a leader by example in that department, um, which is, again, also a, a pretty <laughs> distinct change from um, the Matt Patricia regime. Another thing that jumped out to me was he spoke very glowingly of Stafford, and I don't think that that, I don't think that that's, I don't want to misread that as an interpretation of what Matthew Stafford's future with the organization is going to be, but I do think the days of treating franchise legends disrespectfully are over. Um, the amount of respect that he spoke with Stafford, or amount of respect he had when he spoke of Stafford, um, sounded like you know, even if the organization does determine they want to go in a different direction and really tear down and rebuild from scratch, I don't think they're going to do Matthew Stafford wrong in that process. And that's incredibly important, especially as you look at, you know, the last couple of all pro players. Um, you know, you have 
Darius Slay with a very ugly divorce, Calvin Johnson with a very ugly retirement, uh, and Dominican Sue with, you know, kind of a contentious negotiation period uh, followed by an unceremonious departure. So I think, you know, as you look at the last group of really successful um, franchise, you know, face of the franchise type players, very few, if any, had a real, um, you know, real honorable departure. You know, even if you look at players kind of a, a tier below those guys, like Glover Quinn and Golden Tate, you know, those guys left the organization um, kind of ugly as well. And so I think that that's going to be over and that's really important. Players talk, players understand that, you know, uh, the way you treat your people is a sign of how the organization operates. And I think that's where Chris Spielman and also Barry Sanders to an extent um, being on this committee, you know, the advisory committee, but being kind of around the organization a little bit more and in an official capacity will help. Um, That's something that just has to stop. And I think that we have seen the last of it now. The, the culture talk has been coming up constantly. Um, articles, podcasts, everything. Uh, I'm already sick of the word culture, but I think there are a couple, a couple tidbits to look at um, that came from Spielman when he was discussing culture. One quote that he had was, there is no winning in us versus them. Um, I can't overstate how important that message is. When Bob Quinn brought Matt Patricia in, their approach was everything here has to be replaced. Um, and they wanted to start from scratch. You know, they wanted their guys. They got rid of a lot of very successful coaches because they didn't do the, do things the way they wanted to. Um, Chris Kachurik, you know, he's out in San Francisco, you know, creating one of the most dominant defensive lines that, that took the 49ers to the Super Bowl last year and still played extremely well despite losing a ton of pieces to injured reserve this year. Um, you know, that's just one example. You know, Tony Oden uh, was another coach. Alan Williams, uh, I believe, also he's with the Colts, uh, you know, helping turn around, you know, one of one of the better defenses in the league there. They got rid of a lot of good coaches because they didn't operate their system. Um, and that was a massive loss. I mean, you look at you look at the the development of some of the players on this team over the last couple of years, and it just wasn't there. A lot of young guys have not gotten a lot better. And I think that's because they got rid of a lot of really good coaches and replaced them with not as good coaches, you know, coaches that maybe had more scheme knowledge or whatever, but weren't as good of teachers. Um, and, you know, and also, you know, Matt Patricia had his scheme and that's what he wanted to do, uh, even when it wasn't working. So this us versus them or adherence to a scheme or creating this culture of this is what we're doing, um, no matter what, the fact that Chris Spielman is not interested in that type of culture uh, is a huge breath of fresh air. Uh, any coach or GM that comes in and talks about needing to bring in his guys in an interview should be asked to leave the interview immediately. There, there's no need for that anymore. We've seen it doesn't work. We've seen it in Houston with Bill O'Brien. We've seen it in Detroit, um, you know, with with the Quintricia pairing. Um, it's not just New England guys either, but it does 
you know, it does really uh, occur a lot in them trying to recreate the Patriot way. You don't need that. You need somebody that's going to come in, sift through what's there, take what works and supplement it with new ideas. And that's what he's talking about. He doesn't want to import a culture. He wants to create the lion's culture. And he feels that there's there's pieces of that in place. And I agree. Um, this is a good locker room that this team has. They have hardworking guys. Um, they have uh, a, a good, you know, even a good slogan. You know, he mentioned the one pride slogan as being important. That's something the community can rally around. Um, that, that I think is what has been lacking from the Lions for a long time is embracing their identity and having that humility about, yes, we understand that the past hasn't been great, but who cares? We're looking at building our future. He understands that. Um, so I, I really think that that's the most encouraging thing is that he plans to build a culture rather than finding people that want to import a culture. Uh, like I said, I don't, I don't have a lot of examples of that working really well. Um, even when you look at Miami, you know, they brought in Brian Flores, who is a New England guy, but he didn't come in and say everything has to be my way and bring in a bunch of buddies. He he took some of what was there and worked with that. And yeah, they did clean house with a lot of players, but um, that was more to create assets rather than just get rid of this guy. I don't like him or he's not my type of player. So again, that building building a culture from the ground up um, rather than importing one is a very good sign. Now, uh, Chris Spielman is grabbing all the headlines. Um, the other three men are going to play a role too. I think um, Graves and Hollis are better resources than a search firm. Um, Graves has a vested interest not only in helping the Lions, uh, but also the candidates. You know, he represents the Fritz Pollard Alliance, and they're trying to further the efforts of getting minority candidates in front of decision makers. So. You know, he he has loyalty to the organization, helping them try to find the best candidates, but he also has loyalty to these candidates um, and getting them in front of people. And I think that's going to help get a more balanced search. Um, you know, search firms give you a list of candidates and that's kind of it. Whereas Rod Graves has been working with a lot of these candidates, helping educate them, helping support them. He's going to know a lot of these candidates a lot better. Um, Hollis knows the mechanics of, of hiring coaches and best practices. Yeah, it's a little different going from college um, to professionals, but the, the process and, you know, and, you know, what works and doesn't work, a lot of that can, can be adapted. So I think that this, this whole committee um, is really doing a good job acknowledging where they have fallen short in the past. And then Barry Sanders' inclusion is interesting. Like I said, I think he helps provide a player's perspective, um, not only, you know, on I think uh, some aspects of the coaching search, but more having relationships with players in the building, um, and possibly creating relationships with players that they're trying to build bring into the building. Um, Another point is anybody that thinks the Ford family is the problem, I think should really listen to Chris Spielman talk about his conversation with Mrs. Fordham. He respects good leaders. He has had a number of opportunities um, and he chose to come work for her. He speaks with her with great respect. 
talks about how passionate she was about winning. He he knows good leaders. He he was a football player under multiple coaches. Uh, you know, professional. He was a college football player. Obviously, had good coaches there, and then has spent the last several years traveling around the country, researching all these different teams and coaches to be able to broadcast their games. The fact that he was willing to buy in after multiple teams have pursued him for a role, that should tell you what you need to know about how much this family cares. If they were just looking to keep cashing checks, I don't think they would have gone all out and uh, been able to land him. So that that is definitely a great sign. Uh, and I think more people should take that to heart. I know it's easy to blame the Fords, but they've put a lot in place for this team to be successful. They just have not been able to hire the right people. And right now they are surrounding themselves with people that should be able to help them hire the right people. So uh, I know there's a lot of people that just feel that the, the Ford should sell the team, but I really think that this has the potential to be different than, than you know, previous stabs at, at putting together a football organization. Now, I think that um, I think that my biggest concern stems from the organizational aspect of Chris Spielman's hire, uh, him being an advisor to Rodwood rather than having a formal job title and formal like reporting structure up to him. Um, I have spent eighteen years in the financial services and um, financial technology areas. And typically when somebody is brought in in an advisory capacity, it really means they have no formal authority. And when push comes to shove, they have no formal power. Um, you know, right now the relationship is, is all, you know, roses and butterflies and we're all going to work together. But um, if things get ugly or, or there's some conflict uh, or they don't see eye to eye, Chris Spielman has no formal role or authority. He advises Rod Wood, but if Wood doesn't heed the advice, you know, does Spielman really have any recourse? Um, you know, and I don't want to make Rod Wood out to be a problem. He has done a lot of good things for the organization on the business side, but he has made a couple messes on the football side. And um, my hope is that he knows that that's not his realm. And with Spielman there, he will defer to him more. Um, but if he doesn't, and this organizational structure is created um, to kind of buffer Rodwood, then then I think <laughs> I think the looking for a new owner camp will get another uh, another body moving into it. Um, Rodwood should not be exempt from you know from accountability because he is a a family friend of of the Fords and a confidant and um, a business manager. If he knows what he doesn't know and stays out of Spielman's way and truly uses him as an advisor and collaborates, this will work out. Um, however, this organizational structure provides a very clear out for Wood to dispose of Chris Spielman if he were so inclined. And that makes me a little nervous. Um, again, not so much because of what Rod Wood has done, but because um, in the business world, that's not a good sign. So, you know, I, I think that's uh, that's kind of my thoughts on Chris Spielman in a nutshell. Uh, again, to recap, I, I agree that 
that this was a good move. I'm encouraged by it. Uh, I do have some concerns over the long run, but I do think that they're headed in the right direction with this move and that they are well equipped to conduct a much more thorough search um, and have more success in hiring candidates for uh, the open GM and coach positions. Okay, so I want to take some time now to talk through the GM search. Um, I think I think there's a real misunderstanding uh, amongst fans and even amongst organizations in the NFL on what makes a good general manager. When you're looking at at the general manager position, they're more than just a head scout. Uh, they're not going to be on the road writing up scouting reports all the time. They are they are one of the front people in the organization. They need to lead and create clear communication and collaboration between different areas. You have your pro personnel departments, you have advanced scouting, you have college scouting. Um, those areas all have you know, many employees working under them. And in those areas, the, the GM needs to be able to facilitate all those different areas working together facilitating the vision and understanding what types of players they're looking for, what types of skill sets they're looking for. That's a primary responsibility of a GM. And I think a lot of people forget that, you know, when they look for a good GM candidate, they're looking for, you know, they look at who scouted, oh, you know, so-and-so was kind of the, the guy that was pounding the table for this, you know, player X. That's great. And that, that's important. You know, somebody that is a good scout is going to know how to hire good scouts and how to um, work with good scouts. But if they can't coordinate and communicate and be a leader and, you know, make sure that everybody is doing their jobs and communicating effectively, they're not going to have a lot of success. Um, you know, so a, a GM, a great GM is a collaborator and a communicator that takes different data and opinions and uses their scouting and coaching staffs to reach a consensus on the best players for the team. That's that's so much more than just a good scout. And and you see this happen in the world of business as well. And I'm, I don't want to always refer back to that, but you know how many times has the the best accountant been promoted up to a manager? of accounting, the skills that made them the best accountant don't necessarily translate to being the best manager just because they, you know, they analyze data and, and can, you know, balance everything out better than most doesn't mean that they can lead people and deal with issues and, and, you know, make sure that, that everybody's working together. So, the skill sets you're looking for are far more like a, a head of communications and, and organizational structure rather than just being able to scout. And it's very similar with head coaches too. You know, everybody wants to look for the X's and O's guys. Just because somebody can put together a good playbook and call a good game does not mean that they can lead 53 players and, you know, a, a dozen and a half coaches and, you know, practice squad players that there's a lot more to being a head coach than just calling plays and having a system. So when you're looking at GM candidates, it, it's important to not just focus on what their scouting history is. You know, you want to look for guys that ideally have worked in multiple areas of front office, you know, on the pro personnel side, um, maybe advanced scouting, definitely uh, college scouting. You want somebody that understands how all those different areas work together. You 
I ideally would like somebody that has worked for multiple teams too. Um, that's one of the big failings from a lot of these coaches that that leave New England is they started there and they learned a specific way. And because of the success that that team had, they think that that's the only way to do it. If you have somebody that has been with multiple organizations, they have seen what works and what doesn't work in multiple places. They have a lot more data. They have a lot more experience and a lot more learnings that they can translate into the position. Um, so that I think is, is definitely very important. I wouldn't weed somebody out specifically because of that. Um, there are a couple candidates that are out there and expecting to get interviews that have been with one organization their entire career. Um, but I do think that that's, that's important. You know, if, if all things are equal between two candidates, I would probably lean towards a candidate that has worked for multiple teams versus somebody that's been in one place their whole time. Uh, as we move on to, to the individual candidates that are, that are being thrown about right now, um, you know, I would say Ed Dodds, from my research, is is probably the candidate I like the most. Um, he kind of fits that working for multiple teams. Um, you know, he checks that box, and he's worked for multiple successful teams. Um, he has been in multiple areas within organizations. Uh, he comes from the Seahawks, who have been one of the best drafting organizations over the last decade, um, even a little bit more than that. And I like the style of teams that he builds. Um, he looks for, you know, explosiveness and speed in, you know, the front seven. Uh, he looks for, you know, rangy, smart defensive backs. He, he wants a big, strong offensive line and an offense that can, that can be physical. Um, you know, that, that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, the running game is the focus, but, you know, they need to have, you need to have a balanced offense and he's been able to build those wherever he's been. So I'm really interested in him um, from that perspective. And just a quick to go back to, you know, those communication skills and, and that organizational management that's the thing that that us as fans and uh, writers, we don't really have access to a lot of that information. You know, how how is somebody going to manage an organization? So as as I go through these candidates that I like or don't like, um, probably one of my most important qualities I'm looking for, I don't have a ton of information to inform those. So um, that does make things a little bit more challenging than you know, than it would be if I had a little bit more access to that information or if that wasn't such an important uh, trait to me. But to go back to the list, uh, you know, the list of GMs that I, I really like, um, I like Scott Fitterer and Trent Kirchner also from Seattle. Uh, again, they, they're a little bit more um, in that been with one team the bulk of their career. Um, they're in that category. But again, it's the Seahawks, an organization that I think really does evolve very well. Uh, that's an organization that does have a lot of humility and they have reimagined themselves and they have found different ways um, to stay competitive and to keep having success. So I'm a little more willing to overlook that lack of um, significant experience with other teams with those guys. Um, Joe Ortiz from from Baltimore. Again, uh, the bulk of his experience is with Baltimore. 
Um, but again, that's an organization that I think I, I'm I'm less concerned with um, with them having one correct way of doing things. That's an organization again that has um, continued to reimagine themselves. You know, when you look at at what that team was a few years ago with Joe Flacco and a strong running game and just an amazing defense, and then having to um, kind of tear that down and rebuild on the fly. And they bring in Lamar Jackson and rethink the way they, they build an, an offensive football team and the way that they've been able to keep reloading that defense. And they've kind of switched between four, three and three, four, and, and some of these different, um, different types of, of defensive schemes where they're looking for different players. You know, you had that, that four, three with the massive defensive tackles to protect Ray Lewis and, uh, you know, when when the game was more run focused and then they've switched out to, you know, these more multiple fluid looks with these versatile linebackers that, you know, um, can play on the edge, can play in space. That's a team that has continued to adapt. Um, and I think that, again, that kind of counteracts the limited experience with other ways of doing things where if their their primary experience on that team has constantly been adapting um i think that that lessens that need to have you know learn from multiple mistakes and multiple successes if if they're doing that internally and so those two organizations i think are really two of the best at adapting um and staying relevant over a long period of time so you know candidates from those organizations um i'm a little more open to taking somebody that has spent a ton of time there uh, Rick Smith is another interesting candidate. I'm I'm less of a fan of his just because of a couple um, concerns I have with his ability to find later round players. Um, he did a very good job of making sure to hit home runs when given the opportunity, even with late first round picks. But there's a lot of misses in in those middle areas, um, and that was something that you know Martin Mayhew struggled with, and and we saw how that that kind of worked itself out over time. So I do like him, um, especially because when you look at his his career arc in Houston, things never fell apart until after he was gone. Um, it was not, I mean, everything was building and constant competing while he was there. So there's a lot to be said about that. You know, if, if a guy is hitting on a, an all pro in the late 20s, in the first round, you know, that can minimize the fact that he doesn't hit on very many fifth rounders uh, or, or something like that. So he's an interesting candidate as well. Uh, Mike Borgonzi is a very uh, popular candidate. A lot of, a lot of people really like him. Um, you know, he comes from the chiefs. I, I have concerns with him and I don't, again, I don't know if these are directly with him or that organization as a whole, but that organization does not um, <laughs> does not really care to weed out high character players, um, and that that is a big concern. When you look at how distracting that um, you know that team was under Jim Schwartz when they had all the players getting arrested all off season, and you had Sue on the field with unnecessary roughness penalties left and right. I, I don't think that that's a good look for an organization. I think it's very hard um, 
to have a sustained success with that type of um, lack of character in the organization. When you go back to that culture, it's everybody working in the same direction with one another and pulling, you know, pulling their own weight and making sure to pick up, you know, the person next to them. When you have players that have character concerns stemming from their inability to make good decisions that impact their teammates, it gets to be very difficult to have that good culture. I think on the flip side, the Chiefs have done a good job of of having some very high character coaches and players there to try to keep some of those guys um, in line and have a healthy culture. But I would still, I still have reservations on, you know, where, where was Borgonzi? Um, what was his stance on some of these players that had pretty significant character concerns? Um, you know, was he against them? Was he one of the people that was okay turning uh, a blind eye or not necessarily a blind eye, but giving them another chance? Um, that's, that's a very real concern that I have with him. Uh, Thomas Dimitrov, I, I, again, the big concerns I have with him were he left the Falcons in a really untenable salary cap situation, and he really struck out big time on a couple areas in the draft and free agency. Um, the, the Falcons struggled for a very long time to find pass rushers and to build up a, a strong defensive line. They tried through the draft with high picks. They tried through the draft with lower picks. They tried through free agency with high, you know, high value contracts. They tried with mid-tier guys. They're never really able to fix that. Um, so there's some concerns there just because that is an area that I think the Lions are going to need to improve upon. Um, you know, he did find fast rangy linebackers and and some pretty good players in the secondary which is good but uh i do prefer to build through the trenches um and the fact that he really struggled both on on the defensive and offensive side uh, of the lines is a concern for me um terry fontenot seems to be a, a rising star um again he's a pl he's a player he's a a a GM candidate that has spent the bulk of his career in one organization. It is a, a, a another organization that has done a good job of reinventing themselves with the Saints, uh, you know, airing the ball out like crazy when Drew Brees was in his prime, um, building a strong balanced offense with a good stable of running backs. Now that Brees um, has gotten a little bit older, uh, they've, you know, again, oscillated between a 4-3 defense, a 3-4 defense, different styles, and they've continued to find good players. Um, but again, that's another team that has cap issues. Um, so I really want to understand his philosophies on cap management and, um, you know, and if, if that's something that was within his control or where he stood on that. Um, Elliot Wolf is another name that's been linked to the Lions recently, and I I just don't know what to think about him. Um, you know, he was kind of the golden boy in Green Bay. Uh, his name came up when there, whenever there was a GM vacancy anywhere. Um, the Packers blocked him, and then they had their own opening at GM. They didn't give it to him. He left the organization, went to the Browns. He bounced out of there um, after a short period of time. You know, he's in New England now. 
Um, that that time in New England is not as much of a concern, but what I don't know enough about why he's been bouncing around to really know if he's still a great candidate or not. Um, Brian Gain with Buffalo. Uh, again, I need to learn a little bit more about him. Uh, that's a name that's been bandied about, but I haven't necessarily heard it connected to the Lions. Uh, Reggie McKenzie is another name that I've heard a couple you know, people mention on podcasts or a beat writer would mention him here or there, but I haven't heard a lot outside of that. He's a fascinating candidate because he did a fantastic job in Oakland in a time when Oakland had very few draft picks, no cap space. Um, they were talent deficient on the roster. He was able to bring in talent. Um, he was able to replenish draft picks, um, use the draft picks they had very judiciously, uh, and make those kind of mid-tier free agent signings where he maximized uh, the bang for the buck. And then after he lost that power struggle with John Gruden, uh, another guy that likes to come in and bring in his guys and have things his way, you know, I don't think McKenzie losing his job on account of Gruden is a bad sign. But then he went to Miami and just oversaw a pretty rapid turnaround there. Um, so that's that's a very interesting um you know, a couple stops when you look at the constraints that he had um, on him in Oakland and then the depth of the rebuild that Miami went through and how quickly they were able to turn it around. So that's uh, Reggie McKenzie's a, a very interesting candidate um, that I'm very curious to see if if his name will will surface in the Lions hunt um, as well. Um Candidates that I'm not really a big fan of right now, um, Scott Pioli and John Dorsey, uh, those two, uh, Pioli, you know, he tried to recreate the Patriots in Kansas City. It blew up um, and then he left. He worked with Thomas Dimitrov very closely for a number of years in the Falcons and um, and then he, he left there recently. Uh, I don't have any interest in, in another... New England guy trying to build the New England way. Um, John Dorsey, great success with the Chiefs, great success with the Browns, short stays in both places. Uh, and the rumor there is that it's because he's a very difficult person to work with. And again, I go right back to that that culture thing where you want everybody working together, collaborating, um, and everybody kind of rowing in the same direction. And that doesn't seem to be what he's capable of doing and when you look at the success that those teams have had with him in place drafting you know drafting and building through free agency how bad must those personal issues have been when you look at how very successful uh those moves were so that's a really big red flag for me on john dorsey um you know and as we move on to lewis riddick i I like Lewis Riddick um, as as a TV personality. Um, his draft coverage is fantastic. Um, I think he does really show a lot of the skills needed uh, to be a good personnel man. But he's been, you know, on television for a while. Uh, he, you know, he, most of his experience was in, um, you know, siloed in one aspect of of personnel. Uh, you know, the college scouting, you know, he did work some in the pro, pro personnel um, realm as well, but he, you know, he, he's going to have a lot of learning on the job to do. Um, you know, obviously he's an effective communicator. I don't think you can be on TV 
without being an effective communicator. Um, he he needs to be able to think on his feet. Um, you know, it takes very very quick recollect uh, recollection and and a good memory and the ability to understand a lot of information and to be able to translate it. So I think from a communication standpoint, he would be excellent. But I just worry that the Lions are not in in a position to take a chance on somebody that is going to have to grow into the job. And um, that's something that Lewis Riddick would have to do. So again, I think he could be a very good candidate for an organization, but I don't think the Lions are that organization. Another candidate that I'm I'm not super high on um, is George Patton, and um, I see that the Lions are also interested in him right now. I I worry about the Vikings organization. Um, <laughs> they they are a very good football team on the field um, for the most part since he's been there. Um, you look at their ability to add high-level players. They have done a good job at that. You know, they've they've had premium wide receivers. They've had um, premium running backs. They've had premium defensive ends, premium linebackers, premium members of the secondary. So all good things. Um, but they have not had great depth. They have also run themselves into salary cap situations. And when you look at their draft philosophy, it has largely involved trading up and having a small number of high picks. And those haven't always worked out very well. Um, so I have some concerns about how that organization is run. Um, you know, and as everybody knows, it's run by Chris Spielman's brother, Rick. I don't know that that's the, the model I would like to use. Now, again, you know, maybe in the interview, George Patton says, yeah, you know, that's that's not the way I would go about it. Um, I have a different philosophy, then, then maybe things change. But if I'm looking at an organization that I want to emulate, I don't know that the Vikings are that organization. Um, they've been very good at, at having, a, you know, regular season success and some, you know, some level of postseason success. But then it always seems to be followed by, you know, they have a couple years of, of solid performance and then a dramatic teardown or a, a big reshuffling. And we saw what that reshuffling looked like this year as their defense just completely fell apart um, because they found themselves very old and very expensive on that side of the ball and didn't have the players able to um, backfill. So, um, you know, and then the last candidate that I kind of want to talk about is Brad Holmes. Um, I admittedly was not very familiar with him um, until listening to uh, the Pride of Detroit's podcast, where they they kind of did a deep dive with him. He's a very interesting candidate to me. Um, I have some of those same red flag concerns with the Rams organization that I do with the Vikings organization, where they're making these big trades, they're making these big splashes, um, they have some cap concerns. Um, but when you look at the Rams, they have done a much better job of building out that depth and hitting on those mid-round picks to kind of fortify those those big decisions, um, you know, or those big moves, those big contracts or big trades. So I think I'm a little more comfortable with, with him than I am with somebody from the Vikings um, organization. But again, 
this is all speculation on my part. Um, you know, I don't really, <laughs> I don't really have the opportunity to, to get down into the weeds with some of these guys. So that's, that's kind of where I stand on, on the GMs right now. I mean, if I had to, to rank them, you know, Ed Dodds is, is by far and away my, my favorite candidate. Um, Scott Fitterer, Trent Kirchner, uh, Joe Hortiz, I would say um, Holmes is up there as well. Terry Fontenot is up there. Reggie McKenzie's up there. Um, there you know, and, and then there's just the four, Pioli, Dorsey, Riddick, and Patton. Um, Patton, I wouldn't, I'd say it's three. Pioli, Dorsey, and Riddick, I'm staunchly against. Patton, uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't put in that category. Um, but I do have a few more concerns with, with him than some of the other uh, candidates. Now, um, you know, today I'm recording this on the 4th. The Lions have already started lining up some GM and coaching interviews. Um, so the next couple of days are going to be very interesting. I have seen Ed Dodd's name um, linked to a couple other teams, not the Lions yet. And it's nothing official, but it is a little concerning because either they haven't reached out to him or they did reach out to him and he turned down their request. Um, I, I would have a very hard time believing that they have not reached out to him at all. So I think it might be the latter, uh, which would be very disappointing. Cause like I said, I, I feel that he is as close to a slam dunk um, candidate in this pool uh, as, as it gets. So we'll see what the coming days uh, have in store. Um, you know, I think that, that the GM may likely be hired before the coach, um, but also may not, you know, uh, kind of get into the coaches in, in a couple minutes here. But um, when we look at some of the coaches that are front runners, they have some experience with some of these GM candidates. So with Ed Dodd still being in the playoffs, with Fontenot still being in the playoffs, um, you know, it could be very possible that a coach gets hired before the GM. Um, but, you know, there's already a relationship there to make sure that they are on the same page. So let's uh, let's transition transition over to the coaches. All right. So um, I touched on it a little bit before, but you know, I I think it's important to reiterate that that many teams and fans make the mistake of coveting the brilliant X's and O's guys for for a head coach. Um, you know, they they want that that play caller that you know made the big play you know, play call in, in the Super Bowl or, or the playoffs or whatever, you know, had that, the memorable play, um, or something along those, oh, along those lines. Oh, you know, this team was in the top five in offense, or this team was in the top five in defense. That's, that's an important aspect, having a, a good scheme or, uh, foundational knowledge to, to create the right scheme, but it's definitely not, the most important skill. Um, a head coach is the manager of the roster and the coaching staff. They have to be able to relate to players and communicate their vision um, to those players. They have to be able to teach those players. They need to be able to teach the coaching staff, communicate with their coaching staff, make sure that the coaching staff is an extension of their vision and beliefs. That is not easy. Um, communication and collaboration outweigh schematic brilliance. You know, you obviously want to have a candidate with both. But if a coach can't communicate or spends too much time in the details on one side of the ball or in one area, they're impeding the chances of success. And I mean, look no further than um, 
than Jim Caldwell. If you want an example of a good CEO type coach, a communicator, um, and a manager of the roster and coaching staff, Jim Caldwell's failures were largely philosophical where he, he was too conservative of a game day coach. Um, his weak spot was the games on Sunday, but what happened in between games, he was fantastic. He unified the team. He had a vision. He communicated. He got buy-in from the players. He didn't have an ego. You know, he, he retained several coaches from Jim Schwartz's staff when he came in. He didn't go fire everybody and look to replace them. He went out and hired good coaches with the exception of offensive line coach Prince, uh, who was terrible. Um, that was actually probably a fairly large reason for, um, you know, for his departure as well. But on the whole, he put together very good coaching staffs. He did a fantastic job of fostering a culture and building a culture from from what was left over from the Jim, Jim Schwartz regime, taking what was there and building upon it. Um, that's the kind of coach that has success, not the guy that that is the brilliant play caller who's, whose nose is buried in a play sheet and, you know, is forgetting to cl- call timeouts or challenge plays or m- mismanaging the clock. Um, Matt Patricia was very focused, you know, on, on his defense um, and got down into the details and didn't empower his football team and his football coaches. Um, we saw from, from when he was, you know, released from his contract, we saw the offense completely turn around. He wasn't empowering Daryl Bevel to do what was, what he thought was best and to give them the best chance of winning. He was, you know, he was kind of lording over Bevel and saying, this is how I want you to call the game. That's not what you need. You don't need a coach that, that, removes the authority from his coaching staff. Um, so those are things you have to watch out for. You know, some of those schematic brilliant, you know, you know, schematically brilliant guys, they do have this uh compulsive need to be down in the weeds. And that that makes them a less effective game day coach. So um, you know, having said that, I tend to not like offensive head coaches because they fall into that category. You know, the offense is their baby and they focus all their time on the offense. They're focusing a lot of their time on the quarterback, um, which is all important, but a good head coach is overseeing the entire operation. I, I would prefer my head coach doesn't call plays. Um, that's, that's my personal opinion. I think there's so much that's happening and so many decisions that need to be made so quickly that you're trying to do two things at once and you're doing neither of them as effectively as you could be. You know, a head coach has the authority if they want to make a certain play call in a certain situation, they can definitely do that. I have no problem with that. But, you know, as the defense is on the field and trying to adjust to what's happening, if the head coach is sitting there with his face buried in his play sheet trying to figure out what he's going to do on the offensive side when they get the ball back, that's not putting the team in the best position um, to win football games. Defensive coaches seem to be less likely to get caught up in the weeds or focus so heavily on play calling um, than offensive coaches. And if you look, or, and defensive and special teams guys, you know, obviously uh, John Harbaugh was a, a special teams coordinator and has had a ton of success. Um, so I kind of put 
put him in that same category as defensive coaches. Um, but also on offensive, uh, offensive side, you know, when you have a head coach that comes from an offensive background, they're very much married to a scheme. Uh, when you look at, you know, look at Mike McCarthy in green Bay, he was very much married to his scheme even once it became outdated and his quarterback evolved and his team evolved, like they needed to evolve to a different scheme and he was married to it. Um, defensive coaches, I feel, are used to adapting a lot more because they're constantly adapting to what opposing offenses are doing um, because, you know, they're they're rotating players more and they have specialist players and specialized packages. Uh, I just, I get, I get the feeling, I don't know, it maybe not is it's maybe not backed by any empirical evidence, but defensive coaches seem to be more hands off and open minded to me. And and when I look at the ten winningest active coaches in the NFL right now, they are Bill Belichick, Andy Reid, Mike Tomlin, Pete Carroll, Sean Payton, John Harbaugh, John Gruden, Ron Rivera, Bruce Arians, and Mike Zimmer. Of those ten. Four are either defensive or special teams um, background or coaches that came from defensive or special teams backgrounds. Um, you know, and of the top five, three of them are defensive uh, defensive background guys. And when you look at Reed and Peyton in in that top six, they are known for evolving their schemes. Uh, so they're a little bit out they're you know they're more outliers with the offensive um, you know, offensive-minded head coaches, they they do adapt. But when you look at Belichick, uh, you know, he adapted his defense from 3-4 to 4-3 on a weekly basis, um, but, you know, back in his early tenure when, you know, teams were in their base defense a little bit more frequently. Mike Tomlin came in as a specialist in the 4-3 defense and allowed his defensive staff to run a 3-4 because that's what they were best at doing. You know, that type of humility is super important. Um, and, you know, how many offensive coaches would come in and say, you know, if, if the if the Lions go out and hire, uh, you know, uh, an Arthur Smith, is he going to, how likely is he to retain Daryl Bevel and have Daryl Bevel call all the plays? Not very likely. Uh, an offensive coach is going to come in and they're going to call the plays. So, I, I think um, I think a defensive coach is the better route to go. So having said that, um, you know we we have seen conservative approaches by coaching staffs the last two staffs. You know Jim Schwartz was very aggressive uh, to the point where he was reckless, um, and then Jim Caldwell came in and they were just, they played everything so safe and close to the vest. And that's not how that roster was built. You know, you have, you had Matthew Stafford, you had Kelvin Johnson. Um, you could really have opened things up. You know, they had Ebron, they had Golden Tate. They had so many weapons to open things up. And when you look at what that team could have been, if they were more aggressive, you know, that Lions team was so dominant in late game situations when they played with urgency and had to push the ball down the field, imagine what that team could have been like had they had a more aggressive approach throughout the first, you know, 50 minutes of the football game. 
Um, Patricia, obviously, we don't need to go too far into that. Super conservative coach. Um, you don't want a coach that wants to manage games or keep it close. The NFL is designed to keep games close. Look at what keeping that Packer game close did when a series of bad calls just destroyed any chance they had. You have to be aggressive. No lead is safe in the NFL. Uh, you have to have that aggressive approach. You have to try to win games. Chris Burke from The Athletic did a fantastic job kind of going back to his time when he went to a, a, a seminar that Matt Patricia attended, where Patricia said that he firmly believed that the majority of football games in the NFL were lost rather than won. Well, what's he? what was his philosophy? It was play to not lose. And what the hell did they do a lot of? Lose. So you have to avoid any coach that has that type of mentality, you have to play to win. You have to be aggressive. You know, the analytics point that out as being a crucial part of the, of success. And, and I agree and, and players buy into that and, and you're investing, you know, you're investing some of your, uh, your future and, and your reputation in your players when you're aggressive like that. And, and that means a lot to players. So I think, what what they need to look for is a defensive coach that has an aggressive mentality. And when I look at at you know coach candidates, um, you know Robert Sala has been on the top of my list for the last two seasons. Um, after that first season with Patricia, I had a lot of concerns that <laughs> we would end up where we did. Uh, so I started looking at potential coaches to replace him. Um, and Sala's name, um, came up shortly after that. Um, Matt Eberflus, when you look at what the Colts have done in a short amount of time, uh, defensively, you know, everything that I've heard is that he is um, resourceful. He's a fantastic communicator. Um, look, you know, very innovative, being able to take a lot of different pieces and um, put them in, in position to succeed. Um, a, a quick aside to to this Lions coaching staff, I I really think, you know, their defense was a complete nightmare. Um, but I think there's more talent on this team than than showed. I really feel that Patricia's scheme put his players at a massive disadvantage and did not. Um, he didn't look to maximize players' skills. He looked for players that had traits that he could plug into his system, and. I don't think that that allows a player to shine. So I think that if you get a good defensive coach in here, they might be able to salvage some of these players. Um, and when you look at Matt Eberflus, they didn't have a whole ton uh, invested onto that defense before they started playing well. They were able to take a lot of um, players that had been underperforming, um, some mid-level free agents, a couple veterans that were kind of um, on the wrong side of 30. So they were a little, little more affordable from a contract perspective. And these put together a very, very good defense, um, especially this year when they went out and traded and got DeForest Buckner to kind of get that premier talent on the defensive line. So um, Robert Sala and and Matt Eberflus are are two coaches that I really um, think very, very highly of. Another coach that I really like is Dave uh, Tube. Taub, I never know how to say his name. I hear pronounced both ways. Um, but special teams coordinator from Kansas City. His name has been bandied about as a potential head coach candidate for a long time. Um, 
And for some reason, it just never gains any traction. Um, and it doesn't seem like his name's coming up in this coaching cycle right now, which is unfortunate because I think um, I think special teams coordinators make fantastic head coaches, specifically for some of the reasons I was mentioning before. They don't focus on one side of the ball. They tend to understand how to communicate and um, and relate to players on both sides of the ball. They're used to having to scramble and adapt all the time because all it takes is a starting, you know, a starting receiver to get hurt, and then all of a sudden you know, their starting gunner has now moved up into the starting lineup and they've got to find a new gunner and kind of rejigger their entire scheme um, to make sure that they're protecting that that one guy doesn't become, uh, you know, a weak link because that's all it takes on special teams is one guy to not do their job and everything else falls apart. So special teams coaches come in with a lot of that already ingrained in them. So I'm, I've been very high on, on tube for a number of years. Um, going back to the Caldwell search, you know, when, or the search that ultimately ended up in Caldwell, that was somebody that that I had interest in back then. Um, Arthur Smith, I find very interesting. I'm, I have a, a few more concerns with him. Um, he has coached on both sides of the ball, which is very good. Um, and you know, the big question with him is: is he successful because of Derrick Henry or vice versa? Um, I would have a lot of pointed questions to ask in that interview to find out um, how did he how did he derive that offensive system um, you know did he design design it around Henry knowing what Henry was or did he have something in place Henry became something else and adapt um, both are good obviously you want a coach that if they can recognize the talent in their player and build around it that or in their players and build around it that's fantastic um and if he didn't build around that player but then quickly adapted once learning that player had that that high level capability um where you could design an offense around them that's fantastic as well um however you know what about the rest of the pieces on the offense? Kind of what was the driver for building that offense the way it's built? Um, because in in actuality, um, I think his system and mentality fits in. You know, a lot of people go, oh, it's run heavy. It doesn't fit in with the modern NFL. But if you look at the, the offenses right now that are having a lot of success, they're balanced offenses. Um, I could do an entire podcast on how incorrect it is to say the NFL is a passing league. It's not never has been, never will be. Um, ever since the forward pass was invented, what has, what, you know, what has driven the league is balanced offenses. Anybody that is too heavy on one side, you know, whether it's passing or running does not maximize their chances for success. If you look at the greatest rushing season, you know, single rushing seasons ever, very few of those backs won a Super Bowl, if any, now that I think about it, um, the year that they, you know, had those massive seasons, you know, rushing for 2000 yards um, or 20 some touchdowns. Same thing on the passing side. You go through the the top 10 passing yardage seasons, touchdown seasons. None of them won Super Bowls those years. Uh, Aaron Rodgers won his only Super Bowl when he had his best running game um, supplementing him and and a very opportunistic defense. Uh, you look at Drew Brees, his Super Bowl win came once he had a very good running game and a very good defense. Peyton Manning, uh, same thing. 
his stats in his Super Bowl with the Colts were terrible. The running game and the defense carried them against a very bad Bears team. Um, you know, it was a very bad for a Super Bowl representative. It, it was a weak team to represent the NFC. You know, Rex Grossman at quarterback, they had a fantastic defense, obviously. But again, that was a one-sided team, very heavy on defense, no offense. And then when you look at Peyton Manning's second Super Bowl win, he was <laughs> he was what? You know, they had an elite defense um, and a strong running game, and he was a game manager. So that balanced approach, it's still, you know, you look at at Matt LaFleur in Green Bay, that's a balanced offense. You look at Kyle Shanahan in San Francisco and Sean McVay in uh, in Los Angeles, all balanced offenses. Uh, they use the pass to set up the run or vice versa, but they they have similar actions, whether it's, you know, it's play action or, um, you know, the way they pull their linemen. It makes it difficult for the defense to diagnose what's happening and their play calls don't let the defense focus on the passing game or the running game because everything stays in balance. Arthur Smith coaches that way. Uh, so, you know, there are some that are they're saying that his offense is too old school. I completely disagree. I think. Um, you know, so many people look at like Matt Patricia wanting to throw back to old school as why he failed. Not necessarily. Um, you know, a balanced offense is not a bad thing. That's not old school. You know, throwing the ball 50 times a game isn't going to help you win uh, consistently. Look, if if it was, why why does Aaron Rodgers have one Super Bowl? You know, that guy has played at a high level set, you know, set the bar extremely high when it comes to quarterback rating as far as very efficient passing seasons. But all it takes is him to have one bad game and that team loses in the playoffs. And it's happened. You know, he has one game where he's not, you know, carrying the team and they fall apart. So you can't have just a single side of the ball be dominant. You have to have a balanced offense. So you have to find a coach that's going to believe in that. And so Arthur Smith, uh, I think, would embrace that. You know, Matt Eberflus, they they do the same thing in in Indianapolis. It's a very balanced offense. Um, Robert Salas, again, San Francisco, very balanced offense. Um, Brian Dayball, it's another name that's out there. Um, again, a very good X's and O's guy. I have questions about, you know, his ability to, to lead a team. Um, but he comes from a variety of backgrounds, uh, a very, you know, very balanced uh, approach to to offense. Um, so it's another interesting candidate. I'm, I'm less high on him than, than some of the guys that I've already talked about. Brandon Staley, uh, you know, his name has started really picking up momentum as, you know, he's the Rams defensive coordinator right now, replace Wade Phillips, um, being talked about as, you know, kind of that next, um, you know, you know, uh, boy wonder, I guess, you know, he's a younger guy. Um, he's a disciple of, um, oh my God, total brain freeze, Vic Fangio. Um, but his defense that he is, that he is calling and has designed in Los Angeles has really made things very difficult for some of those, um, some of those offenses that are using, some of these crossing route, you know, a lot of these offenses now are attacking single high coverage with crossing routes and, and have found ways to poke holes in, in the, the cover three defenses. And he has found a way to counteract that, um, through play call and formation and disguising coverages and just a general defensive philosophy. 
Um, very good X's and O's guys, but he's young, not a ton of experience. You know, what kind of, um, what kind of communicator and leader is he? Um, those are, those are questions I don't have answers to. Um, Eric B enemy is kind of on my nope list. Um, I, I don't want, um, I feel that that he's got a lot of that offensive genius part with him. Um, he does have fantastic relationships with his players. Um, I I think he can lead a team very well, but again, there's he strikes me as he would definitely want to call plays since as an offensive coordinator, he hasn't been calling plays. Um, Andy Reid has, you know, he's, he does a lot of the game planning, but again, I would prefer a head coach that does not want to call their own plays or if they must, that they're a defensive coach. Um, Urban Meyer, I don't want anything to do with that guy. Um, I know people that have worked for him. Um, whenever the going gets rough, he just picks up and, and, and leaves. He's very opportunistic. Um, you know, again, the culture that he has created and, uh, you know, that he created at Florida and Ohio state and left behind just terrible. I, um, the people that I know that have worked for him don't have a good word to say about the guy. Um, so I, I would prefer they bring back Matt Patricia before they, they hire urban Meyer. Um, Greg Roman, I, I, I don't know. I, there's just, you know, he has done a very good job of adapting, adapting his, his offenses. Um, again, I, I don't know if there's a lot more to being a head coach than the skill sets that he has displayed. Um, so I'm not as high on him as, um, some others are, uh, Joe Brady for, that's just a simple matter of level of experience. He's been an NFL coach, um, for one year, you know, is, is he networked well enough to fill out a staff? Um, has he seen enough and learned enough where he's not learning on the job? Um, if you're going to blow everything up and try to trade Matthew Stafford and go with a complete rebuild, then, then maybe you can have a coach like him that where he's learning on the job. Um, but if you have any designs on, on salvaging this team and, and refortifying, um, I don't think he's the right guy. And by that same token, any college coach right now, I'm not particularly interested in, um, the, the college game and the pro game. Yes. A lot of the X's and O's are starting to blend more and more, but there's so, there's so much difference between being a college head coach and an NFL head coach. Um, so much time and effort for college coaches is devoted to recruiting. Um, you know, that's, that's a skill set that does not translate very meaningfully to the NFL. Um, when you talk about, you know, yes, communication wise, but, um, you know, that's such a big part of a college coach's, uh, job requirements. And other than being an effective communicator, um, and getting people to buy in, which granted is important. It doesn't have a, a whole lot of practical functionality in the NFL. Um, you know, it takes a different mentality and different approach to talk to and communicate with NFL players than it does college kids. Uh, a lot of learning on the job there. Um, and it has to be the right type of college coach that you hire. You know, you can't go get somebody like Chip Kelly that thought that he was smarter than the NFL and that he would show everybody. Um, 
you have to watch out for those guys. And, and when you look at the last few college coaches that have come into the NFL, um, they tend to not last very long because once they hit adversity, they don't react to it very well because they never, they never had to uh, adapt to adversity with the constraints that are in place. You know, in, in college, once you kind of have that reputation, your program somewhat is self-sustaining, you know, Nick Saban could sit on his ass for the next five years and still put together decent recruiting classes because the school recruits itself. Um, he's not playing from a level playing field. You know, in the NFL, though, everybody has the same salary cap. Everybody has the same roster limits. Um, you know, your your bottom end of the roster players can be poached. Um, you have to to manage a roster with injuries and knowing who to activate on game day. You can't just, you know, throw a bunch of scholarships and you know at at people and and have these super deep, super um, talented rosters. So there's just so much of a learning curve that I don't I'm not very comfortable with any college coach. So there's there's some other coaching candidates out there um, as well, but those are just some of the ones that I've had the opportunity to look into um, to some extent. Um, lastly, I kind of wanted to 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 close out on just the approach and some of the questions that I would have um, for for these head coaching candidates um, when they start to come in and interview, and whether these are asked by the GM um, or just the this the search committee with Spielman and Rod Wood and, and Graves and, um, and Hollis. Um, my first question is what is their plan for Matthew Stafford? Um, in my opinion, I think it would be completely foolish to do anything other than, um, focus on Matthew Stafford as a key piece to the, the near future. He's 32. His physical skills aren't anywhere close to diminishing. Um, his contract is not a, a, you know, an impediment to building this team. He is a leader, um, especially given the news that's been coming out about how passionate he was about explaining, talking to the team on Saturday night and explaining why he was playing. You cannot throw something like that away for a first round pick or even a first round pick or in a third round pick or something. When you are looking to try to turn around a team to have a high-level quarterback that the team believes in, that guys rally around, that has a track record, that is super important. I think it is completely foolish to, to get rid of it. Now, that's not to say that if you have a good GM candidate that does want to move on, you absolutely shouldn't do that. That would be a very difficult decision to make, but I think that that Matthew Stafford is a key building block. Um, and the only way I would entertain anybody saying they want to get rid of him is if there was a caveat that it would have to be a King's ransom. You know, if they could get multiple first round picks, um, or a high first round pick and multiple second round picks, you know, to get rid of a, a player like Matthew Stafford for, uh, you know, a 27th pick this year and a second round pick next year, not worth it, not worth it at all. Especially when you look at how difficult it could be to, to replace that and how, you know, you have to find the right player. And then that player has to mature. Um, it took Stafford a couple of years to mature. And, you know, even though some of these quarterbacks are coming in, um, and contributing very early, I think, um, you know, if Stafford were 36, that's completely different. Um, but where he is in his career right now, I think, um, he is an asset in an organization that has too few. 
Um, that's not to say he's not an asset that shouldn't be moved, but it has to, you have to make sure that it's, you know, you're getting a surplus. Um, you know, it shouldn't even be an even trade. It should be a trade that, that you look at as, Ooh, this is lopsided in our favor. That's the only way I would consider moving on from him. Um, but you know, that's a question. What, what do you want to do with Stafford? Um, question number two, what is your plan on defense? Um, I think everybody knows that there is a problem on defense, but why this question is so important to me is I want that coach to be able to identify what pieces there are that they can build around. I want to hear them say that this player is salvageable, or I think I could do this with this player or whatever. That question kind of opens them up to um, indicating their philosophy um, without directly asking them. If you ask somebody, what is your philosophy on team building? They have prepared that answer. Um, there's going to be little talking points and hints. They've, they've prepared what they want to say so that they can put their best foot forward. When you're interviewing somebody, you want to ask questions that don't totally give away what your objective is because you want, you want a real response. You want something, you know, you want something that hasn't been rehearsed a million times. You want to get a glimpse into the way they think. So if you ask, what is their, what is your plan on defense? You're going to understand um, their approach to rebuilding that defense. You're going to um, get candidates to talk about which players they think are worth keeping and building around. And when you have enough candidates come through that door, you're going to get a pretty good idea for which players should be part of the solution versus, um, you know, probably players that need to be moved on from. Another question that I would ask, and now that I'm looking at these, I would revert back to not saying that these are in priority order, um, but what are their expectations for success, the timeline, and the plan to achieve success? Again, this, this question is more looking at their philosophy and analyzing the way they think. Um, you know, is it important that they say, I think I can turn this around in, in two years, or I think I can turn this around in three years? No, I don't necessarily care about the timeline based on the number. I care about the timeline based on they're committing to something, and then they're going, I want them to explain how they plan to achieve it in that timeline. Um, so if if somebody says, I want to rebuild this whole thing, okay, well, what is your turnaround time for that? And how do you plan plan to do it? What is your plan in place? Because I'm not letting you blow this up unless you have a really good plan in place. Um, you know, and then then the flip side of it is, I think I can have us back in the playoffs in two years. Okay, how? You know, and again, that's, that's playing back into they're identifying the key pieces that are already in place. They're identifying the, the, the things that they can bring to the organization to fill some of those gaps or reverse some of these um, outcomes from different approaches being taken. And, you know, some of the, you know, these questions could also be very important for a GM candidate. They could be used for a GM candidate. Some of them, you know, definitely seem catered to a GM candidate. But the reason I want to ask these types of questions to a coach, again, you're getting a little bit of a glimpse into the way that they think. But also then you can marry it up to these questions that you have asked a GM candidate and find who has similar philosophies. Um, do they think about things the same way? You know, what are potential friction points between these two people? Because there will be friction points. 
Um, but you want to then be able to, you know, in a second interview or once things start getting narrowed down, be able to then hone in on those like, hey, you know, the coaching candidate that we're very interested, you know, we have these coaching candidates that we're very interested in. We, you know, what are your thoughts on working with them? Um, you know, their philosophy dis- differs from you in this way. How do you plan to work through that? Those are all questions that need to be asked. Um, moving on to the next question, are they open to keeping current staff members? Again, this is kind of a multi-tiered question. This means they will, you know, if they have a good answer to this question, that means they have done their homework. They know who some of these coaches are. They've either reached out to them or reached out to people who have worked with them. They've done their homework. It also lets you in on their philosophy. You know, if they say no, um, I don't see anybody on this staff that that I could really work with, that's a red flag. So that's an important question for me to, to have answered. Um, then kind of a follow-up, how do you how do you want to build a staff? Um, I want to know what they're looking for in staff members. I want to know the the staff members they want to bring in. Who are the the coordinators they plan on bringing in? Why do they want to bring them in? What is, you know, what is the reasoning? Is I want to know is it because they have a previous relationship with them, or is it deeper than that? You know, most coaches that are going to bring in assistants are going to have some previous relationship with them. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It's a bad thing if that's the only reason they want to bring them in. So you want to dive into this coach's mentality for how they're building a staff so you can understand the way that they think about um, this job and, and the approach they take to it. If they want to bring in their own guys because they want people, they want to work with people that they're familiar with, that is a good indicator that that's a closed-minded person and that's not the right person for this job. Um, next, next big question, um, how do they plan to handle game day responsibilities? That, that is a very important question. Um, going back to, you know, why I tend to focus on defensive coaches, um, a little bit more. I want to understand how this coach plans on, on handling game day. Again, this, this kind of answers multiple questions. It lets you know, are they comfortable delegating certain things? What is their philosophy regarding um, play calling? Um, if they do want to handle calling plays, then I want you know I want to understand how. Okay, how are you going to manage the clock if you're calling plays? How are you going to manage in-game situations and adjustments if you're calling the plays? If they have a a, a well thought out structure where they're empowering certain coaches, well, I, I'll have you know somebody on my staff that manages the clock. Um, or you know watches for replay challenges. I'm a little more open than if they want to call plays and they're an offensive coach or, or you know some of these things that I've been trying to shy away from a little bit. If they have a good solid plan in place for how they're going to handle all of these different things, if they have devoted no thought to any of that, that's a big red flag again. So um, these questions are really focused on understanding the logic, um, the preparation, and then the logic behind. Um, their approach. And these are kind of re um, reconfigured questions that I have asked when interviewing um, people in my, you know, in my full-time job. Um, I think, you know, it's important to understand the person and understand the way they think and the way that they work with the people that they're going to be working with more so than looking for specific skills. Um, skills can be learned. 
or taught. Um, but there are certain traits that are much more difficult to, um, to have success without or to train. You, it's very difficult to take a poor communicator and make them a better communicator. It is very difficult to take somebody that, that has a hard time collaborating and get them to collaborate. Um, it's much easier to take somebody that has those skills and, you know, teach them X's and O's a little bit better or something along those lines. Um, you know, Jimmy Johnson was not a big X's and O's coach. He was, he was truly a CEO and he was more of a personnel type of coach. He delegated a lot, you know, he built up talented coaching staffs and delegated play calls and, and all, a lot of the X's and O's to his, his assistant coaches. Um, so that's, you know, that's definitely a path to success, uh, you know, for, for a coaching candidate to be able to do that and, and have success without that, those X's and O's or being that schematic genius that so many people look after. Um, so again, I just, I just want to kind of close out this segment with, um, the skills that I'm looking for in a head coach, they need to be a good teacher. They need to be able to communicate. They need to be inspiring. They need to be accountable and they need to be trustworthy. And then lastly, and probably most important, they need to be open-minded. Um, when, when I looked through all 32 teams and their coaches, um, either that are still there or have now been released, uh, a lot of the ones that have been released lacked these skills. Uh, the majority of the coaches that, that are still uh, not only employed, but coaching this upcoming weekend or sitting on by waiting to coach the following weekend, they have these traits. Um, so I think, you know, the Lions are in much better position and are handling this coaching search much better than they did last time. Um, Bob Quinn kind of slipped up an oppressor and alluded to the fact that it was always the plan to bring in Matt, Matt Patricia. Um, it wasn't a coaching search so much as uh, going through the motions to be able to bring in the person he had already pre um, predetermined. That's not what's happening right now. They are casting a wide net. They're talking to a variety of coaches, a variety of GM candidates, getting a variety of opinions. And if you're asking the right questions and you have the right people asking those questions, you're going to learn a lot. You know, the, the reason for casting a wide net is not just to interview as many candidates as possible in hopes that you're finding the good ones, but you're also finding out what these candidates think of your team. You know, what type of systems would they run? You're getting so much more data, not only on, on those candidates themselves, but the league and the trends. And if you start hearing some of these GMs talk about the same coaches, you know, different GMs talk about the same coach wanting to work with them. Well, that, that tells you something when you have multiple head coaches talking about different people that they want to work with, um, or people that they have respect for, you know, that would be another question now that I'm talking about it. Who are some other coaches that you have respect for and, and why? Um, understand, you know, who they look up to or who they model their, their career after. Um, because those are important questions to know. Uh, you know, like I said, it's a successful head coach is a communicator. They are a teacher. They are a collaborator. They help everybody work together. It's not just a somebody that knows how to call plays. Um you know, and, and we saw Matt Patricia was a poor communicator. He did not inspire confidence. Um, 
you know, it seemed like he was a good teacher, whether or not what he was teaching was was worthwhile. Um, that's a different question, but you know, was he trustworthy? No, he kind of spoke out of both sides of his mouth. He wasn't accountable. I mean, in every post-game press conference after they would lose a game the same way, what did he always say? He would always talk about how it was fundamentals and ex- execution that needed to be worked on. Well, who works on that? That's the players. You know, that was a very thinly veiled punt, punting responsibility onto the players and not taking accountability. So, um, you know, these are important factors. You know, Matt Patricia was not a dumb guy. You know, okay, we all know he is a rocket scientist. His problem was he was an egotistical man that didn't know how to be accountable and didn't know how to communicate and work well with others. And all the X's and O's and all the football knowledge in the world weren't enough to save him. Um, he had a philosophy that he was going to stick to no matter what happened. And, and it seemed like when times got tougher, rather than broadening his horizons, he, he narrowed in and doubled down and doubled down and just refocused on the thing that he believed in most rather than ever possibly allowing the thought to creep into his mind that maybe my approach is wrong. So I think with some of these questions, um, some of these candidates and some of these skills that I've talked about, I think this is a very good outline for how the Lions can add uh, a successful coach in this in this search. All right, so that kind of brings me to a, a close on, on episode one. Um, you know, it, when I decided to kind of fire up a, a podcast, I was thinking about what a difficult space I've tried to jump into here. Um, you know, the Detroit Lions have not had a lot of success on the field uh, for for a few years. But when you look at the caliber of people covering this franchise, it is outstanding. You know, fantastic beat writers from M Live, the Detroit Free Press, Detroit News, The Athletic. Uh, you've got the guys over at Pride of Detroit that do fantastic work and have, uh, you know very good podcasts. You have, you know, the athletic back in the podcast arena, you have Lions Wire and Eric Schlitt um, and Jeff Risden that both do fantastic work. Uh, so, you know, and there, you know, Detroit Lions podcast, there's, there's a, there's a very crowded uh, group of very good people providing content on this team and uh, the effort to try to crack into that right now, um, not being affiliated with an organization or anything is um, is pretty daunting, but um, you know we'll see how this goes. Right now, I'm uh, using a free trial uh, <laughs> on some software to put this podcast together. I threw together uh, a little intro and outro, and I'm uh, sitting in my closet because this is the best acoustics I can get speaking into my AirPod. So um, this isn't going to be the highest quality production, um, at least for a little bit. I'm hoping to get some traction here. Um, so if if you've listened to this and you find it uh, to be eye-opening, entertaining, interesting, all of the above, whatever, um, please do whatever you can to spread the word. Um, like I said, there are a lot of good people doing a lot of good work. Um, this podcast is only going to stick around if I feel like I'm one of them. And, um, and in order to do that, I'm going to need people to listen and, and provide feedback and engage. So, um, 
it would be a great help if if you like if you like this podcast uh if you want to hear more rate review um share tell friends family loved ones enemies i don't care um as long as they listen that would be fantastic uh like i said i've i have an interesting story to tell uh from the perspective of how i became a lions fan and being a lions fan um in the state of wisconsin and um i have i got into writing because i've always had somewhat of a unique take on football and looked at it from a different perspective um so hopefully that perspective is enlightening enlightening to people so again please rate review uh share the podcast um i can be found on twitter at keen uh, keen observe or at gmail um my email address is keen observations at gmail um and then my blog is at wordpress um keen observations.wordpress.com um so looking forward to interacting with people hearing um feedback i i want to make this a good podcast so if you do have feedback please feel free to share it and i look forward to um uh, to recording another episode thank you